11. H. Golf links in that they lend themselves readily to the joint ownership of a club or school, where the expense falls on a number rather than on an individual. In a great many places the boys of a town or village have clubbed together and had obtained permission from someone owning a piece of vacant ground that is not likely to be sold or improved within a few years and had built a tennis court on it. This arrangement helps the appearance of the land, that should be secured at a very low rental, or none at all if the owner is public-spirited and prefers to see the boys of his town grow up as healthy, athletic men rather than weaklings who had no place for recreation but in the village streets where passing trucks and automobiles will endanger their lives, or at least cause them to be a nuisance to the public. To build a tennis court properly means a lot of work and it should only be attempted under the direction of someone who understands it. The things most important are good drainage, good light, and sufficient room. A double court is 36 feet wide by 72 feet long, but in tournament games or on courts where experts play it is customary to have an open space about 60 feet wide by 110 to 120 feet long, to give the players plenty of room to run back and otherwise to play a fast game. A court should always be laid out north and south or as near these points of the compass as possible. In courts running east and west the sun is sure to be in the eyes of one of the players nearly all day, this is of course a very serious objection. While it is very pleasant to play tennis in the shade of a tree or building, a court should never be located under these conditions if it is possible to avoid it. A properly placed court should be fully exposed to the sun all day. First of all it will be necessary to decide whether a grass or dirt court is to be built. If the grass is fine and the place where the court is to be happens to be level, there is little to do but to cut the saw very short with a lawn mower and to mark out the court. If, on the contrary, there is much grading or leveling to be done. A dirt court will be much cheaper and better in the end, as constant playing on turf soon wears bare spots. The upkeep of a grass court will be expensive unless it is feasible to move its position from time to time. Whatever the court is to be, the first question to consider is proper drainage. If the subsoil is sandy the chances are that the natural soakage will take care of the surplus water, but on the contrary, If the court is at the bottom of a hill or in a low place where clay predominates, it is necessary to provide some means of getting rid of the surplus water from rainfalls or our court may be a sea of mud just when it would be most full to us. To level a court properly we shall need the services of someone expert with a leveling instrument of some kind. It is not safe to depend on what seems to be level to our eye, as our judgment is often influenced by leaning trees, the horizon, and other natural objects. With a few stakes driven into the ground, the tops of which are level, we are enabled to stretch lines which will give us our levels accurately. A court should have a slope of a few inches from one end to the other to carry off water. After the level is determined, all there is to making a court is to fill in or cut away soil and earth until the proper level space is obtained. As a rule it is better to dig away for a court rather than to fill in as we thus obtain a better bottom and one that will require but little rolling. In the case of a slope. It is well so to locate the court that the amount of earth excavated from one end will be just about sufficient to fill in the other. The final surfacing of a court is done by means of clay and sand in the proportion of about 4 or 5 to 1. The clay of course being in excess. To mix clay and sand thoroughly. The former should first be pulverized thoroughly when dry and the mixture sifted over the court carefully and evenly. The next step is rolling and wetting and more rolling and wetting until finally the hole is allowed to dry and is ready for play. The slight irregularities and roller ridges that often appear in a court will soon be worn off by the player's feet, but playing of course will not change the grade, 
A new court will be greatly improved by use, but no one should be allowed on a court except with rubber-soled shoes. Heeled shoes will soon ruin a court, and it is bad practice even to allow anyone to walk over a court unless with proper footwear. The preliminary leveling of a court can be accomplished with a rake and a straight-edged board, but after the clay has become packed and hard it will be necessary to use considerable force in scraping off the inequalities. A metal cutting edge, such as a hoe or scraper, will be found full. A court should be swept with a coarse broom to distribute the fine material evenly. Another very good sweeper can be made from a piece of wood about 6 or 8 feet long to which several thicknesses of bagging have been tacked or fastened. The final step in making a court consists in marking it out. Most courts are marked so that they will be suitable either for singles or doubles or so that either two or four people can play at a time. Where tape markers are to be used, the proper distances will appear on the tape without measuring. But if lime is used for marking a careful plotting will be necessary to secure the proper distances after which the corners should be indicated by angle irons, so that the court may be ray-marked at any time without ray-measuring. Considerable difficulty is often experienced by beginners in marking out a court, and, in fact, it is not a simple matter. The first thing of importance is to determine generally one corner of the court and to get a baseline and a sideline at a true right angle of 90 degrees. The same principle may be employed that is used by builders and surveyors in squaring a building, as it is called. You will need a 10-foot pole with marks for the feet indicated on it in lead pencil, and in addition to this a few 20-penny spikes and a ball of stout twine. Drive a nail into the ground where you want one corner of the court and fasten the line to it, then stretch the line to another nail to mark either a side line or a back line. You will then have one side and the corner fixed, and the problem is to get another line at right angles to it. Boys who have studied geometry know that, in a right angle triangle the square of the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of the squares of the other two sides. It isn't necessary to understand this, but it is the principle employed in squaring. You next stretch another line and have someone hold it. On the fixed side line you measure 8 feet from the corner nail and mark it with a piece of twine tied around the line. You also make a 6 foot mark on the line to be at right angles to it, the exact direction of which is yet to be determined. Both of these measurements must be accurate. The boy on the end of the loose line moves it until the distance between the two pieces of twine is exactly the length of your 10-foot pole. The angle thus formed is exactly 90 degrees, or a right angle, having obtained one side and one end. To finish marking is simply a matter of making the necessary measurements of a cord as shown on the diagram and marking each intersecting point with a nail driven into the ground. Another way to lay out a court is to drive two stakes or nails into the ground 27 feet apart. The line of these stakes should be the position of the net. Then take two pieces of twine, one 47 feet 5 inches long, and the other 39 feet. Fasten one line to each of the spikes that you have placed 27 feet apart. Where the two lines meet as they are pulled taut are the true corners of the court, as there are only four points where they can meet. The various measurements can then be marked as above by referring to the diagram. It is customary to mark a double court and to indicate the lines for singles afterward. The game of tennis may be played either by two or four persons, or sometimes an expert player will stand to beginners. The ball used is rubber filled with air and covered with white felt and is 2-1-2 inches in diameter. It is necessary to play with two balls, and to save time in chasing those that go wild it is customary to play with three or four. One of the players begins by serving. The selection of the court is usually chosen by lot or by tossing up a racket in a way similar to tossing a scent. The side of the racket where the woven gut appears is called, roof, 
and the other side, smooth. This practice is not to be recommended, as it injures the racket. It is better to toss a coin. The game of tennis consists in knocking the ball over the net and into the court of your opponent. Keeping up this volley until one side or player fails to make the return properly or at all, which scores his opponent a point. While a game in tennis consists of four points, the simple numbers from 1 to 4 are not used. The points run 15.30, 40, game, when one side makes them all, or it may be, 15.30, 15 all, and so on, the score of the server being mentioned first, where one side has nothing their score is called, love, when one side has scored 4 points the game is won with this exception, when both sides are tied at 40, or, deuce, as it is called, the winners must make 2 points more than their opponents to win. In this way the game may be continued for a long time as the points are won first by one side and then by the other. The score at deuce, or 40 all, will be denoted as vantaging or vantage out, depending upon whether the server's side or the other wins one of the two points necessary to a win from deuce. If first one side, then the other, obtains one of these points the score will be vantaging or out, as the case may be, and then deuce again. Until finally when two points clear are made it is, game. A set of tennis consists in winning six games. But in this case also there is a peculiar condition. Where each side wins five games it is necessary in order to win the set to obtain a lead of two games. The score in games is then denoted just as in a single game. Deuce, and, vantage, games being played until a majority of two is won. To learn the game of tennis, first obtain a proper grip of the racket. It should always be held firmly and as near the end as possible. The leather butt being inside the hand, a loose grip will absolutely prevent a player from becoming expert, as the accuracy and quickness that are a part of tennis can never be obtained unless we have the racket under perfect control. The various backhand, high and low strokes will only come from constant practice. The most important stroke to master as well as the most difficult is a swift, accurate service. A player who is otherwise a fair player can easily lose game after game by not having mastered his service stroke, and thus he beats himself without any effort on the part of his opponent. The various, twist, services have almost passed out of use. Even the best players employ a straight, swift overhand ball. To fail to serve the ball over the net and in the proper place is called a, fault. The player has two chances and to fail in both is called, a double fault. A common mistake is to attempt a swift smash on the first ball, which may fail half the time, and then to make sure of the second ball by an easy stroke which a skillful opponent can return almost at will and thus either extend us to the utmost to return it or else make us fail altogether. It is better to make sure of the first serve than to attempt a more difficult serve than our skill will permit. Golf the game of golf, while of comparatively recent introduction in this country, has sprung rapidly into popularity. It is hard to say just why it should be such a popular game except that it combines a certain amount of healthful outdoor exercise with an unlimited opportunity for skill. And in addition to this, and like the more violent games, it can be joined in by old as well as young. The proper construction and maintenance of a golf course is an expensive proposition. A private course is altogether out of the question except for the very wealthy. A club in starting with a limited amount of money will find it more satisfactory to begin with the construction of a 9-hole or even a 6-hole course rather than to attempt a full course of 18 holes which will be indifferently constructed or kept up. The average 18-hole course is about 3 miles long and is built according to the general lay of the land. A hole in golf consists in the stretch between the tee, from which the ball is knocked off, and the putting green, 
where the player, uts, the ball into the, hole, a can sunk into the ground which has about the same diameter as a tomato can. The score consists in the number of strokes required to make the hole. And of course the player making the fewest number of strokes is the winner of the hole or match. Golf has but few rules. The secret of playing well consists in being able to swing the clubs with accuracy and precision. There is no game where proper form counts for more and none in which more careful preliminary instruction by an expert is so important. If one can at the very outset obtain the services of a professional or a skillful player for a few lessons, it will do far more good than ten times as many lessons after we have contracted bad habits which will have to be unlearned. The surest way to be a poor golfer is first to think that it is a sort of old man's game, or, as one boy said, a game of knocking a pill around a ten-acre lot, then when the chance to play our first game comes along to do it indifferently, only to learn later that there is a lot more to the skill of a good player than we ever realized. Another very common mistake is to buy a complete outfit of clubs, which a beginner always improperly calls sticks before we really know just what shape and weight of club is best adapted to our needs. The common clubs in most players' outfits consist of a driver, brizzy, cleek, iron, and putter. We can add to this list almost indefinitely if we wish, as there are all sorts of clubs made for various shots and with various angles. The game of golf consists in covering a certain fixed course in the fewest number of shots. We shall have to practice both for distance and accuracy. The first few shots on a hole of average length will give us an opportunity for distance. This is especially true of the first shot, or drive, but after that we make what are known as approach shots that is to say, we are approaching the pudding green where we complete the hole by putting the ball into the tin cup sunk into the ground. On the green we shall need to be very careful, as a stroke wasted or poorly played counts just as much against our score if the ball goes only a few feet as if we sliced or foozled our drive. In scoring for golf there are two methods, either the score of each hole is taken and the winner of a majority of holes wins the match, or the total score in counted as in, medal, or, tournament play. Bogey score, is a fictitious score for the course that is supposed to denote perfect playing without flukes or luck. The mysterious, Colonel Bogey, is an imaginary player who always makes this score. XBII photography the selection of a camera snapshots versus real pictures how to make a photograph from start to finish aside from our own pleasant recollections. An album of photographs can be the most satisfactory reminder of the good times we have had on some vacation or outdoor trip. Photography has been made so easy and so inexpensive by modern methods that everyone should have some kind of a camera. Small instruments capable of taking really excellent pictures within their limits can be bought for $5 or even less. Of course we cannot hope often to obtain pictures that will be really artistic with such a small outfit. But sometimes the inexpensive cameras will give remarkably good results. Snapshot pictures seem to fill such an important place in our outdoor life that no vacation or excursion trip seems to be complete unless someone takes along a camera. The modern way of taking pictures which is simply pressing a button and sending a film to the professional to do the rest, including developing, printing and mounting, is really not photography. Almost anyone can take pictures with a small hand camera. The manufacturers have perfected instruments so complete for this kind of work that there is very little for us to do beyond being sure that we have an exposed section of film in place and that we have sufficient light to obtain a picture. Of course we must have the focus right and must be sure we are pointing at what we wish to take. Real photography is quite different from snapshot work. 
it is a hobby so fascinating and with such great possibilities that there is scarcely anything that will give a boy or girl more real pleasure in life and a better opportunity to be outdoors than to become an expert outdoor photographer. Unfortunately it is a rather expensive pastime, but even with a moderate priced instrument we can obtain excellent results under the right conditions. I have seen a prize-winning picture in an exhibition that was made with a cigar box, with a pinhole in one end for a lens, even though one does not care to become an expert photographer, by all means get a camera and make snapshots, it is quite a common idea for an amateur to attribute his failures to defects in his material or outfit, you may be sure when you fail it is your own fault, dealers in photographic supplies constantly have complaints from customers about defective materials, and certainly 9 out of every 10 of these cases are simply due to the carelessness of the operator with perfectly good material. It is well for a beginner in photography to start with a simple snapshot camera. They can be bought for 3 or 4 dollars up to 25. Such cameras are used with films, and simply require the operator to expose his film in plenty of light and with the proper attention to the distance that the object to be photographed may be from the camera, until we can accurately estimate distances, such as 8. 15, 25 or more feet, it will be far safer to pace off the distance, remembering that a long step for a boy is about equivalent to 3 feet, some cameras have a universal focus and require no adjusting, but an adjustable camera will usually give better results, some cameras are so constructed that they may be used either as a hand machine or on a tripod for view work, they can also be adapted either to films or plates and be operated with the ground glass for focusing, or if desired, the focusing scale and viewfinder may be used. The size of our camera will depend largely upon our purse. The cost of the camera itself is not the only thing to consider. All the plates and supplies increase in proportion to the size of our instrument. A good all-around size is 4x5, or if we really wish to become photographers the 5x7 is a standard. A number of new sizes have recently been introduced and have proven very satisfactory. Perhaps the best size for a snapshot camera is 314x512. There are a great many makes of cameras on the market, but even at the risk of advertising one firm more than another it is only fair to say that there is really nothing better in pocket snapshot machines than the Kodaks. In view cameras it is different. There are instruments of a dozen makes any of which will produce excellent results. The tests to apply in selecting a view camera are its workmanship, compactness, and the various attachments and conveniences it has. The salesman from whom you purchase will explain fully just what its possibilities are, especially if you take some experienced person with you who can ask questions. Suppose you begin photographing with a simple, snapshot, outfit. The first thing to remember is that there is absolutely no excuse for the large percentage of failures that beginners have in making pictures, and which are due solely to their own carelessness and inattention to simple details. First of all, Immediately after making an exposure, be sure to form the habit of turning the key until a fresh film comes into place, then you will never be troubled with the question whether you have exposed the film or not. Every professional photographer who develops for amateurs handles many films in which some of the negatives are blank and some are double negatives with two pictures on one film. This is solely the fault of the photographer, who was never quite sure and would first make the mistake of exposing a film twice then turning the roll without exposing it at all. If you are really in doubt, it is better to turn the roll to the next number, as you thus simply lose a film but preserve both negatives. If, on the other hand, you make a double exposure, you will lose both pictures. 
The snapshot photographer should never take a picture unless he really wants it and unless he is pretty certain of making a picture. Snapping here and there without a proper condition of light, focus, or subject is a very bad habit to contract. Until you can make at least 8 good pictures out of 10 you are not a photographer. No average lower than this should satisfy you. Do not blame the lens for your failures. In recent years the art of making lenses has advanced wonderfully. And while the one in your camera may not be an expensive one or capable of a wide range of use, it is at least adapted to the purpose of your instrument or you may be sure that the manufacturers would never have used it. We should not consider the snapshot expert who merely presses the button as a real photographer, even though he obtains fine pictures. No one deserves this name who does not understand the operations of the dark room. One who has experienced the wonderful sensation of working in a faint yellow ruby light and by the application of certain mysterious chemicals of seeing a picture gradually come into view on the creamy surface of a dry plate will never again be satisfied to push the button and allow someone else to do the rest. However, if you do not wish to go into photography extensively you may at least learn just what limits your hand camera has. And at the end of the season in place of a lot of ill-timed pictures you can have an album full of creditable prints for which no apology will be necessary. It is quite beyond the limits of this chapter to go into photography fully. But some of the simple principles may be of use to the boy or girl who has taken up the subject. The modern snapshot camera even of small size has great possibilities. With a clear negative we can have an enlargement made on bromide paper that will be a source of great satisfaction. The actual making of enlargements is usually beyond the limits of an amateur's outfit. In this part of photographic work it will be better to patronize a professional, to become an expert photographer and one whose work will be worthwhile. We must really make a study of the subject. The modern outfits and chemicals make it very easy for us if we do our part. The basis of successful work is a good lens, which is really the eye of the camera. In selecting it we should get just as good a one as we can afford. There are a great many excellent makes of lenses on the market and even the stock types that are supplied with moderate priced cameras are of very good quality. The two distinct types of lenses are the rapid rectilinear and the anastigmatic, which names refer to their optical properties in distributing the light. For our purpose all we need to know is that the higher price we pay the better our lenses will be. And in addition to this the further fact that the best kind of results can be obtained by any lens provided that we do not try to force it to do work for which it is not adapted. To understand photography we must first of all get a clear notion of the use and purpose of the stops. As the various openings or apertures are called that the lens is provided with. A fast lens is one that will give a sharp picture at a maximum opening. And such lenses are both the most expensive and the most universal in their application. Lenses of this class are used in making instantaneous pictures with very rapid exposures, and for ordinary view or portrait work will produce no better results than much slower and less expensive types. Perhaps the best way to understand photography as an art rather than a push-the-button pastime is to take up the process of making a picture step by step. To begin with, the real photographer will use plates instead of films, as much better pictures usually are possible by their use. Dry plates come a dozen in a box, usually packed face to face that island with the film or sensitive sides facing. The plate holder must be loaded in a dark room or dark closet, with absolutely no exposure to daylight or any artificial light whatever except a very faint light from a dark room lantern. A combination of ruby and yellow glass or paper. We should always test our dark room and light by means of a plate before we trust them to actual working conditions. 
Take a fresh plate and cover it half with a piece of cardboard, or if it is in a holder draw the slide halfway out and allow the darkroom light to strike it for 5 minutes. Then develop the plate just as you would in exposed negative, and if the test plate shows the effect of the exposure and darkens, we shall need to make our light safer either by adding a sheet or two of yellow or ruby paper or we must examine our room carefully to stop up any cracks where rays of white light may enter. We must remember that a plate sensitive enough to a record instantaneous exposures of one five hundred of a second must be sensitive to any tiny ray of outside light also. Almost any room will make a dark room, especially if it is used at night. By drawing the shades and by doing our work in a far corner of the room away from outside light we are comparatively safe. Of course an electric street lamp or other bright light would have to be shut out, but this can easily be done by pinning up a blanket over the window. When we have loaded our plate holders we are ready to make a picture. Suppose, for example, it is to be a house or a vista of some kind such as a group of trees or a bit of water, the first thing of importance is to obtain a point of view that will not only give us the picture we desire but that will leave out any undesirable features that we do not care to take. Some cameras are provided with a small viewfinder for snapshot work, and this may often be used to get a general idea of what the picture will be. Successful photography consists largely in knowing just what to take and what to omit. Sometimes an ugly piece of fence or a post will spoil an otherwise excellent picture. We must also remember that in a photograph our colors are expressed in black and white, and therefore a picture that depends on its color contrast for its beauty, such as autumn foliage or a sunset, may be disappointing as a photograph. When we have decided upon our subject, the next step is to set our camera in the proper position to permit the plate to take in what we wish. Usually it will be necessary to shift our position several times until we find the proper position. The tripod should be firmly set on the ground and the camera made as level as possible. The camera should then be focused with the stop or diaphragm wide open. The fact that the image is inverted as it appears on the ground glass will at first be confusing to a beginner, but we soon become accustomed to it and never give it a thought. Our focusing cloth should be tightly drawn about the head to keep out as much outside light as possible. At first we have some difficulty in seeing the image on the ground glass, but after we learn to look at the glass and not through it we should have no further trouble in this respect. By moving the lens backward and forward we finally strike a position where the principal image to be photographed will appear sharp and clear. The camera is then in focus, but we shall discover that other objects more in the background or foreground will appear blurred and confused. Often it is desirable to have a blurred or fuzzy background. But if we desire to bring the indistinct objects in focus we must stop down our lens first by trying the number 8 stop. And if this does not accomplish the results the number 16. And so on until we get what we wish. As we look at the image on the ground glass, it will be evident that as we stop down our lens, the more remote objects are gradually brought into view with a sharp outline. We shall discover that the image on the ground glass becomes less and less distinct which shows very clearly that we are admitting less light. And the lesson to be learned is that when we make the exposure we must give a corresponding increase in time as the amount of light admitted decreases. An exposure that would give a perfect picture at number May 8th be very much underexposed at number 30 to diaphragm. Having focused our camera and set the stop, we then close the shutter, insert the plate holder in the back of the camera and carefully draw the slide. Omitting to pull the slide is a common mistake with beginners. We are now ready to decide just what exposure to give our plate. Rules for exposure are almost useless. 
but in general it may be said that the modern plates are lightning fast and that in bright sunlight at midday the average exposures will not be over one twenty-five of a second, an exposure meter will prove to be of great assistance to a beginner, but such arrangements are not often used by experts except in doubtful cases, we soon find that we can guess at average exposures with considerable accuracy, especially if we adopt a certain brand of plate and become accustomed to its working qualities. Of course all of these speeds must be indicated on the shutter, and all we can do is to set our shutter at this point and squeeze the bulb. Correct judgment in exposure will only come after experience. In taking interior views or making pictures on dark days we shall be less likely to make a mistake than in bright sunlight. I have made two interior views, to one of which I gave ten minutes and the other an hour, with practically the same result in the negative. An overexposed plate is flat which means that the print will lack contrast and be unsatisfactory as a photograph. After the bulb is squeezed and the exposure made we are ready to develop our plate and to see what result we had obtained. Of course in practice we make a number of exposures before we begin to develop. Some photographers use numbered plate holders and keep a record of the pictures, time of day and of exposure, stop and any other items of interest. We now take the plate holder in our dark room and prepare our developer. There are a great many developers on the market and we can scarcely make a